The healthcare industry has undergone transformational change in the past 10 years, especially as it relates to the implementation of technology. Even so, there's much more to do and many companies are out there doing it, but you don't know about them. At Intrepid Healthcare, our podcast will bring you the crazy ones, the rebels, the troublemakers, the ones who see things differently. The people that are crazy enough to think they can change the world in healthcare. So sit tight and enjoy as we tell the story of another thought leading trailblazer. Welcome back to Intrepid Healthcare. I'm your host, Joe Lavelle, and I'm truly looking forward to this conversation with another trailblazing innovator on interoperability. We're going to get right to it today. We're joined by Mickey Tripathi, President and CEO of the Massachusetts eHealth Collaborative. Mickey, welcome to the show. Great. Hi, Joe. Thank you for the opportunity. Great. Thanks for making the time to be with us today. Before we start our discussion, could you take a few seconds and tell the audience about you and your background? Sure, happy to. I'm the president and CEO, as you said, of an organization called the Massachusetts eHealth Collaborative. I've been here since 2004. Prior to that, I was with the I was a manager in the healthcare practice of the Boston Consulting Group based in the Boston office and what got me into health IT was uh, one of my last engagements there was working out in Indianapolis with the Reagan Street Institute write the business plan for and then I uh, was the founding CEO of the Indiana Health Information Exchange IHI and that led to my joining the Massey Health Collaborative in 2004. Perfect. And then could you give our audience a 10,000 foot overview of the Massachusetts eHealth Collaborative? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, it's, we're we're a confusing organization because we do a lot of different things, <laughs> and we've we've changed a little bit over the years. So, we were founded originally in 2004, as I said, as a nonprofit organization to implement some pilot projects that were being funded by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. So, Blue Cross put up 50 million dollars. That's 50 million dollars for essentially a community experiment in Massachusetts focused on health information technology, health information exchange, and data analytics. And I think it's important to understand the context of that by projecting yourself back to 2004 and thinking about how, you know, in terms of health IT, that was sort of back in the Neolithic age. (laughs) Uh, We've, you know, we've learned a tremendous amount and and the industry has gone through some some tremendous changes since then. But back then, Blue Cross in particular, as well as the Massachusetts chapter of the American College of Physicians and the Massachusetts Medical Society were kind of looking at the experience of some of the leading provider organizations in the state, Mass General Hospital, the Brigham with electronic medical records, and kind of wondering how come this stuff isn't, you know, isn't racing out into the market like we're seeing it, you know, happen at everywhere from Home Depot to Walgreens to, you know, to the local bank. And so what they thought was, well, we should do an experiment. Let's, you know, let's put money on the table. We'll identify some communities and we'll outfit them with electronic medical records, try to stand up some health information exchanges and set up a data warehouse to extract some data and then be able to evaluate what are the pros and the cons of, you know, electronic medical records in the ways that we're deploying them. So that's what we start. That's what we did from 2004 to 2009. We selected three communities in Massachusetts, Brockton, Newburyport, and North Thames, 600 providers across those there's three, three communities as well as four hospitals, and we literally paid for almost everything. So we purchased their electronic medical record systems, we paid for hardware, we built a team who could provide the practice consulting support 
to get that stuff in place. We chose vendors, um, wow. <laughs> built a data warehouse, all of that. So that ran through 2009. At which point, the you know, so the pilot projects were over, and we changed to where we are now, which is basically a nonprofit sort of boutique consulting firm, implementation services firm, and a data analytics firm. We have a data warehouse business that supports meaningful use, clinical quality measures, CMS, QCDR kinds of things as well. So we've, you know, sort of took that foundation and now have turned ourselves into a nonprofit organization supporting the industry, health information technology enablement. Great. Based on all that you've learned, I guess, since even before 2004, what are your thoughts now on the current state of interoperability? I actually think that we're in a great place, which might be a little bit contrary to what, um, you know, the pulse seems to be when you, if you look at the, you know, the, the normal health IT press and, you know, some of the conversations going on in the Congress. And the reason I say that I think we're in a great place is that I think that we're finally at a place in terms of the maturity of the market that, that the market is able to take this over and starting to run with it. And we're already starting to see that happen. And, you know, the primary motivator of that, I think, is demand. I think there's genuine demand out there now from providers in particular for interoperability in a way that I would argue just wasn't even there five years ago. You know, five years ago, if you went and did a vendor selection with a provider organization, and we've done many of them, you know, interoperability was pretty low on their list of things that, you know, were going to be the showstopper issues when they were choosing the HR vendor, and that's completely changed. Now that's, you know, number one or number two on their list, and they want real live demonstration that interoperability is going to be available to them out of the box in certain, you know, more the more easy cases and with a pathway toward, you know, some of the more difficult interop- interoperability types of transactions they'd like to conduct. So we have genuine demand, and a part of that is obviously related to the fact that we now have EHRs in place. So, again, just a short five years ago, and again, you know, we just have to remember where we are, that we're really at the beginning of the beginning here. Just five years ago, we were at a point where most providers didn't have an electronic medical record. You can't have an ATM network if you don't have ATMs. You can't have a phone network if you don't have phones. So a short while ago, you literally might be one of the only people in town who had a fax machine. Well, that's not very useful to you, so you don't really demand a whole lot. But once everyone has fax machines, once everyone has the HRs, we're now starting to see that people really want to interoperate. So I think that you know we're seeing genuine demand. We have EHRs in place, and the vendors are starting to respond, and the market is starting to take this over. Great. You know, in terms of interoperability, I think you would agree that Massachusetts is a early adopter, a leader in that field. I moved from Massachusetts in 2010 to Alabama, and Alabama is at the other end of that list. They're a laggard. What should be done and what can be done to help the laggards, the states that didn't invest early like Massachusetts did? Yeah, that's a great question. I, you know, somewhere along the way, you lost your Boston accent, and you and it, and it got taken over by the Alabama accent. I don't know how you did that. <laughs> um, so, uh, I mean, it's a great question. I think that the answer is that the market is really how this is going to get solved. So what I mean by that is Massachusetts, we've certainly had a lot of experimentation with health information exchange. The sort of current terminology is public HIEs. 
right? We've had a number of initiatives like that in Massachusetts and had, a, you know, a number of successes, but also notably a number of failures, which has, you know, sort of um, given us just a little bit of the scars on the back that you need to sort of say, okay, let's figure out what's going to work here, given that we've, you know, tried this a number of times over the last 10 years and <laughs> eight out of 10 things didn't really work out so well. So I can, you know, I can point to a number of things in Massachusetts that didn't work so well. What we've found is the need to have an, an, an understanding of what are the things that a public HIE, I'll put that in quotes, can accomplish versus what are the things that really make most sense for, you know, sort of private sector, vendor-driven kinds of initiatives. So if we look at where the balance is now, you're starting to see that, you know, initiatives like uh, Care Everywhere, which is the interoperability solution to, that connects up Epic users among themselves, and Commonwealth, which is connecting up a wide variety of vendors um, everywhere, everyone from Athena Health to Clinical Works to Meditech to Cerner to McKesson with a single uh, approach to patient identification and record location and the ability to query for records. We're starting to see networks form that I think will, you know, will penetrate down, you know, to Alabama and into Texas and into lots of rural areas because it's driven by the vendors themselves. It doesn't require you know, the kind of, you know, sort of HIE, public HIE leadership that might be hard, you know, to sort of, you know, coalesce in places that don't have, you know, sort of a history of doing that or don't have all those ingredients. So, you know, I sort of liken it to the development of ATM networks that, you know, we started to, we had different disparate ATM networks at a time. And then at some point they got together and said, we need to make these interoperable. And we're getting close to that point here where you're starting to see the maturity of networks, some of them vendor driven, like, you know, like Epic, some of them collaborative vendor-driven, like Commonwealth, and some of them are going to be, you know, like the public HIEs, the ones that end up surviving, like the Massachusetts Health Information Highway in Massachusetts, and, you know, some of the ones that are in New York State, like um, HealthX in New York City and Rochester, and, you know, HealthBridge in Cincinnati. There, there are some of those that will survive as well and will be the ones who are kind of the ATM networks that figure out how to connect up their systems. Right. Mickey, the health geeks have been talking about this thing called FHIR, and it's not F-I-R-E, it's F-H-I-R, and it's a standard, and they've been talking about it for a couple of years. What is FHIR, and how will it relate to this greater scope of interoperability? Oh, fire is going to solve all the problems of the world. It's going to solve <laughs> Middle East peace. It's going to solve poverty. It's going to solve racism. It's going to be a great and beautiful world. Um, yeah, fire is a, um, is a is a I agree. It's a is a very hot topic. It's it's a standard. It's a new standard, new to healthcare standard for interoperability that I think holds a lot of promise actually for you know for the industry you know i will say one concern i have is that people are you know get uh, the, you know we're we're on sort of the the gartner hype curve um right. <laughs> and fire and we're approaching the peak so the trough of disillusionment will probably come you know sometime soon here as we start to really implement this stuff there are a lot of you know justifiable hopes i think with respect to fire so what you know what is fire fire is an interoperability approach a a, a pattern of integration that is based on RESTful APIs, that which is the you know sort of the term of art. Any of the listeners don't know what that means. I guarantee you, they actually do know what that means. Every time you go onto Amazon and click on that shirt or that book or that video, that is a RESTful API. That's a query that you're making to the Amazon system that's being enabled through your browser, and it's giving you a response back. That's exactly how Fire works as a RESTful API. And then coupled with that is an authorization approach called OAuth, which again. If people feel like they don't know what that is, I would guarantee you do. Every time you get onto a website and it asks you, would you like to use your Facebook credentials to log on to this website, that's OAuth. 
that is basically federated authorization where there's a trusted organization who will allow you to use those credentials to go into other trusted environments. The great benefit, I think, of FIRE and OAuth are two things. One is that FIRE enables data-level queries for information in a way that our current kind of clunky standards don't right now in healthcare. So, you know, increasingly, you know, if you think about the apps that you get on the App Store, you get on, you know, the Google Play Store, those are very focused kinds of things, right? They're, they're like for very specific things, and they just ask for certain types of data or they enable certain types of things, and that's what we like in healthcare, right? We want you to be able to download your allergy app and just query your provider organization to get your allergies. And you don't need everything else. You don't need the long history of every appendix, you know, gallbladder surgery you had. You just ask for your allergies. Well, right now, we don't have good standards that allow us to do that in a data-level way. There are other things like research, other things that we would just like to be able to ask for the data as data elements. Fire enables that. So you can imagine that that really sort of expands the possibilities of what interoperability means rather than just pushing a document from one place to another, you know, just pushing a discharge summary, which is kind of what we think of as interoperability today. The other thing that is great about FIRE is that it is a standard that's completely aligned with the types of development and programming conventions that are used in the rest of the Internet economy. So as I said, you know, Amazon uses RESTful APIs, which are what FIRE is based on. So does Google. So does Twitter. So you have a whole group of developers who live outside of healthcare, who are, you know, accelerating the world forward. And here we are in healthcare with our own set of kind of moribund standards who are, and we're the laggards, right? So the opportunity to start to introduce those kinds of standards means that you're going to have developers from outside of healthcare jumping in and, you know, starting to push the envelope on the kinds of things we want to do, which, you know, as if, there, if we haven't learned anything about the Internet over the last five to seven years, it's the crowdsourcing works. And the more people you get, you know, who are willing to throw themselves at something, um, the better, you know, the outcome is going to be at the end of the day. And I think that's what's really great about FIRE. Good deal. And you can't talk about FIRE without talking about the Argonaut Project. Tell us about the Argonaut Project, what your role is in the initiative and any recent updates you might have. Absolutely. Yeah. So the Argonaut Project is, my role is, is I'm the project manager for the Argonaut Project. And it's an initiative that was, it's a private sector initiative that came out of some work that we that that was out of a a work group that's a part of the Health IT Policy Committee. So I'm the chair of the Information Exchange Work Group of the Health IT Policy Committee, and there was a report that was issued by an advisory group called Jason Advisory Group, which is a scientific advisory group to the federal government. They issued a report on interoperability that talked about a bunch of things, and it also talked about APIs as a mechanism for um, enhancing interoperability. And Dr. David McCauley from Cerner Corporation and I were asked by Dr. DeSalvo, the national coordinator, to co-chair an ad hoc task force to review that report. And we reviewed the report and made some recommendations in late 2014 to the national coordinator and to the policy committee and the standards committee related to, you know, accelerating the industry, the industry's use of APIs. And that um, that was, you know, sort of uh, enthusiastically approved by the national coordinator and by the advisory committees. And right after that, a group of vendors got together. So that was, you know, Epic, Cerner, Athena Health, Meditech, and some and a group of provider organizations like um, Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, Mayo Clinic, Intermountain Healthcare. They all, you know, got together right after that report came out and said, we, you know, we'd like to pick up the mantle on this and accelerate. The, the maturity of, of the FIRE and OAuth standards for use in healthcare. 
one of the concerns was that, you know, there's, as I was talking before about we're on the Gartner hype cycle here, there's growing momentum and enthusiasm for fire, but it's still a very immature nascent standard in healthcare. So we need to be able to, you know, get as much, you know, sort of real world input into the development of that standard so it'll be usable in a, you know, in a practical, useful way as early as possible. So, you know, I'm sure that um, there are clinicians and, you know, other listeners here who have had the experience of using things that are immature and you don't want to go through that experience. <laughs> um, if, you, if you don't have to. So this is really an effort of the vendors to say, we think we see that this is coming. If we don't provide some market initiative around it, it may not happen in the best way, and it certainly won't happen as fast. So what we're going to do is put some money together. We're going to accelerate the development of what we call implementation guides, which are, um, it's kind of like a cookbook. So an implementation guide in the standards world is like a cookbook. The standard is sort of the ingredients, but you need an implementation guide, which is the cookbook, which tells you, well, you know, do this first, do that first, then do this, and that's how you get the thing up and running. So we're working on a set of implementation guides that can be used by the industry to implement fire in a consistent and as simple as possible way to serve, you know, sort of the 80% of day-to-day clinical transactions that, you know, that are based on just, you know, a basic subset of, you know, 16 to 18 um, commonly used clinical data elements. So in terms of the current status, we're publishing a set of updated implementation guides like at the end of May, early June, that we want to make available so that people, uh, vendors in particular, can use those to certify themselves for meaningful use, for the next round of meaningful use, which has an API requirement. We also have a testing community, which is for free, and it's available to any of your listeners who are interested in participating, where we have these vendors as well as, you know, uh, something like 80 organizations, developers and others who participate and manage sprints of testing. So we have sprints that will say, all right, we're going to work over the next three weeks on exchanging medication information, and we'll give them an implementation guide. The various participants will exchange, try to exchange medication information using the FHIR and OAuth standards, and then we'll, you know, have sort of a wrap-up where we take the lessons learned and then bake that into the implementation guide so that we can improve it and make it as, as, as you know, ready for, ready for the industry as possible. Perfect. Recently on our show, we've interviewed folks from the Sequoia Project. At HIMSS 16, we had a video project with the Commonwealth Alliance. You mentioned the Commonwealth Alliance. What's your take on groups like this and how they're advancing interoperability? Do you mean Commonwealth or Sequoia? Either or both. Or both. Okay, yeah. So, yeah, I would take, you know, either. So I should I should disclose that we do work for Commonwealth, and I'm on the board of directors of Sequoia. So. Perfect. So you know, <laughs> um, so, you know yeah, so, good information. So I know them intimately and want to make sure that everyone knows that I have those connections as well. But that doesn't that doesn't taint my views of them. So, yeah, each of them, they're, they're very different in nature, but both of them are very important. So Sequoia is is very important as a place for public-private public-private innovation and agreement on, you know, high-level needs for interoperability, right? Someone has got to put together that kind of coordinated governance, I think is what it was referred to in the ONC Interoperability Roadmap, to say, well, you know, healthcare is a multi-dimensional thing that has lots of different actors involved. You have payers, you have providers, you have patients, you know, you have all these people, and everyone has a stake in it. And someplace we need to have, you know, sort of a nation, a national-level conversation about what's going to make sense as we think about, you know, sort of the balance between privacy and data exchange, for example, how we reconcile, you know, variation across, you know, privacy laws, you know, across the states. What are the best standards for us to use for data exchange? How do we figure out trust 
across systems so that I, you know, sort of know that you are who you claim you are when you come and ask for that record. All of those things are things that need to be worked out. And, you know, Sequoia is a great place to do that in a public-private, you know, kind of setting where you have the government that's, you know, that's able to uh, participate in that conversation, but it's not government-driven. The Commonwealth is different in nature in that Commonwealth is a vendor-driven initiative. So it's a set of vendors who got together and said, we're going to implement some stuff across our systems. And what we're going to do, we're first off going to base it on a patient-centric view of the world. So, you know, each of us are vendors and we are installed in provider settings, but the view of the world really ought to be patient-centric, not provider-centric. So what we're going to do is create an infrastructure that allows us to match patients across all of these settings and locate where the records are for an individual patient. So if you're looking for a record for Mickey Tripathi, you ought to be able to go to a place and say, where, with Mickey's consent, where are his records? And that should be, you know, available to you regardless of whether that provider happens to be on Meditech or Cerner or Athena Health or eClinicalWorks. And so, you know, that's one thing that's, you know, sort of an important aspect, which is how do I identify records across systems in a, as close to a, you know, a patient-centric way as possible? And the second part is how do I make it as seamless and easy to use as possible? Because I can set up interoperability, but if it's really clunky to use, people aren't going to use it, right? So the importance of the Commonwealth Project, I think, is that it's a vendor-driven thing. And what that means is that the vendors themselves are investing literally millions of dollars in making the workflows work all the way down to the bottom of their systems. So that if you're a clinical user on Athena Health, they want to make sure that it's working in the way that Athena Health works so that you use the Commonwealth system, right? And it's not right. like an add-on feature or something that you have to, you know, go to another website or something like that. Because, again, our experience with health information exchanges in general is that people aren't going to do that. We've, we've spent, as a country, we've spent $30 billion on getting them to buy electronic medical records. <laughs> so not surprisingly, they want to use them <laughs> um, now. So anyway, so that's what, you know, each of them is sort of different in, in what they're doing and the importance to the industry. Each of them is really important to the industry. Perfect. Thank you for that answer. I think I struck gold. I had no idea of your relationships to both groups. So you're uniquely qualified for sure for that. What do you think lies ahead for interoperability? What's next? What's the market going to do the next couple of years? Yeah, I think that we're going to start to see, you know, I, I guess I would point to two things that I think are really important and, and you know, that I'm, that I'm frankly really, really, you know, sort of sanguine about. I, I'm very optimistic about where we are. So the first is, and I alluded to, to it before, is the maturation of these networks. So, you know, if it follows the pattern of other industries, you know, you think about the way wireless networks developed and the way ATM networks and the way airline scheduling, I mean, you, you name it, and, you know, almost every other vertical, there is interoperability across systems that, that came about because you had networks that formed for a subset of customers to meet their own particular needs, right? So, you know, AT&T, wireless, and Verizon, they have different customers, they have different features, they have, you know, different reasons that, you know, even in my own family, I'm on AT&T and the rest of my family is on Verizon. I mean, you know, each of us has our own preferences and, and we just you know, choose to use those, but we have an expectation that there will be a certain amount of interoperability across those networks, but the networks themselves have figured out. The government didn't come in and tell them they had to do it. They just, you know, they figured it out. And similarly with ATM networks, I mean, I don't know how old you are, but, you know, when I when ATMs first came out, I mean, I had to look at my card and see, oh, this is on the Cirrus network. I need to find an ATM that's a Cirrus ATM. Right. Right. And I would have to look around Boston and find there was no web then either. So, you know, you really didn't have, you know, to call the bank and say, hey, do you know, you know, any other Cirrus ATMs in Boston? I can't find any. So at some point, though, the ATM networks 
real, they had solved the last mile problem in a way, but they were all siloed. And the last mile problem is really hard to solve. So the great news is that you have Epic and you have Commonwealth, um, and you have Athena Net and you know other networks and, and some of the public HIEs that are solving this last mile problem. So that now our nationwide interoperability issue is about how do we connect up the networks, not how do we connect up every end user. If we leave that to the networks, just say, you know what, the networks will take care of that. They'll solve all that, you know, connecting up to that last mile and that last inch. Last inch. Let's just figure out what it means for, you know, Epic's Care Everywhere to connect up with Commonwealth. Let's let's define that, and then we'll you know, then we'll have nationwide interoperability because, uh, you know, the, the the network those networks and three or four others cover, you know, SureScripts and a few others cover 80% of providers in the you know in the country. So that's, that's one thing that I think we should expect in the next, you know, year or two that we're going to see real progress on. Second is, you know, what I was talking about with Fire. I think that the API, you know, once that API app store kind of model starts to take off, and you're already starting to see it. So, you know, Cerner has an app store. Epic has an app store. They're all very crude and primitive right now. You know, Athena Health has one. Smart on Fire at Children's Hospital has one. Geisinger has one. You're starting to see providers as well as as well as vendors um, start to put that out. And they're all very early and primitive, so they're all underwhelming, I think, when you go and look at them now. But just like the Apple App Store, and, you know, there was a time when the Google Play Store was launched and there wasn't much on it, right? And everyone was like, well, why would anyone do this? I mean, you know, geez, look at the App Store, the Apple App Store. You know, that's that's got like tens of thousands of things in the Google Android, you know, Play store has nothing now look at them right i mean they're both huge and rich and they drive you know a ton of things that people didn't expect i think that we're going to start to see that in healthcare as well and that'll be you know sort of patient driven as well as provider driven um, people tend to focus on oh it's going to be patients who are going to want to take their app you know download it from some place onto their phone and then get their allergy data or something i think what we pay less attention to but equally important is you've got the whole generation of young providers who themselves are demanders of this stuff, right? They're the, you know, you got the anesthesiologist who just came out of Harvard Medical School and he's at Beth Israel and he's like, hey, I, I've, I wrote a new anesthesiology app that I want to connect into the EMR. <laughs> right now there's no place for him to do that or her to do that, but, you know, in an API app world, there will be a place for them to do that. And I think over the next couple of years, we're going to see a lot of, you know, tremendous progress in that area as well. Perfect. Mickey, we're about to wrap it up here for today. But before I let you go, where can people go to contact you and learn more about the Massachusetts eHealth Collaborative? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for asking. Our website is www.maehc.org. You can certainly Google Mickey Tripathi. My name is unique enough that you don't get 10 million of those. <laughs> and we're also on Facebook. So uh, you can just find us, Massachusetts eHealth Collaborative, on Facebook as well. Mickey, it's so great to have you. Thanks for stopping by and sharing your great wisdom with us. Absolutely. Thank you. I really appreciate it. That wraps this broadcast. On behalf of our guest, Mickey Tripathi, I'm Joe Lavelle, and we'll see you soon on Intrepid Healthcare.